Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, I have a question for you. Hit me with it. Have you ever had the experience of waking up in the middle of the night, dark room, and realizing that there is someone in the room with you? Somebody who wasn't supposed to be there. <laughs> um, not since I was a child. Uh, I had a couple of incidents like that where I, I thought there was a, an extraterrestrial in the room with me. Like I'd, I'd been watching too many episodes of Unsolved Mysteries. Mm-hmm. Those were really scary, yeah, weren't they? They, they were. were scarier than any horror movie I saw as a yeah, kid. Yeah, especially when they got into the supernatural, whatever season that really took hold. But yeah, I remember being influenced by those, I think. And, uh, waking up and feeling like there was like a creature sitting on my bed and that the, like the worst thing I could possibly do would be to sit up and acknowledge its presence because then the gig would be up. Right. You just had to pretend. Right. But I haven't really experienced anything like that in my adult life aside from, you know, the cat coming in and, you know, puking right. under the bed or something of that nature. All natural phenomenon. All natural. Yeah. Total natural explanation for the, 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 the cat phenomenon. There. Now, did did you see the alien? Could you remember what it looked like? I couldn't see it. Like, so it wasn't an actual visual hallucination or anything. Mm-hmm. But it was it was like being stuck between a state where I'm kind of having a dream awareness of what the situation might be. So like a mm-hmm. dream image, which I guess if you really wanted to stretch it, you could even say it's kind of like an outer body experience because I'm having like a third person view of the scenario. Yeah. It's almost uh, not not visual. It's a presence awareness. Yeah, like presence awareness, but then kind of backed up with um with with a thought interpretation of what this scenario might look like from you know from a third person perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't really remember having this experience in a very strong way, though I think I have woken up and and had weird kind of thoughts, uh, mm-hmm. almost as if dreams were continuing into the moment. But this is not an uncommon thing for people to report. Waking up in the middle of the night, dark room, or I guess it doesn't even have to be all that dark. You just wake up, and as you're coming out of that liminal state, there's a silhouette leaning over the bed, maybe, mm-hmm. or or even something clutching your throat, pressing down on your chest, sitting on your torso, or covering your face. Uh, these are experiences people sometimes have. And one can imagine if you take it the next step as you're sort of... Uh, you're, you're lying in bed, you're lying supine, you're prone, you are in this vulnerable position. An obvious way that uh, this threat could could take on a new sort of connotation is if people believe that there's a sexual element to it. Yes. And, uh, you know, and it's, it's worth noting here, too, in all of this, that we talked about the darkness. So often you're, bra- you're waking up into a mix of darkness and light, a, a twilight, a, a, a realm between day and night. And likewise, this is a space between a full aw- uh, awaking and full sleep between dream and waking wakefulness. Yeah. So in, in many respects, you're in a space between. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're you're also in a space that's uh, a physical space that's often between two acts. Right. I mean, what do people primarily think of the the bed in their house being for? It's for sleeping, but also people think of it as being for sex. Yeah. 
I mean, I don't know what you think of it for. But no, no, no. I mean, that's that's the com. That is a common um, use of the uh, of, of the bed, sure. Yeah, and so it's pretty clear to see how if you have this kind of experience of waking up thinking there is a presence, an unwanted presence, or an unrecognized presence in the bed with you, on the bed with you, or even on top of you, that this type of experience could take on sexual types of feelings. Yeah, and certainly also on top of, um, you know, various uh, nocturnal um, um, arousal, nocturnal emissions, uh, you know, other uh, sexual elements common to the, the sleeping experience. Right, and so this connects to the topic that we wanted to talk about today, the concept of the incubus and the succubus, the age-old legendary demons that come in the night to have sex with human beings. Yes. It's one of my my favorite topics uh, because it has everything, right? It has, I think it has, I knew that about you, Robert. <laughs> because, I mean, just, just as a topic, right? I mean, it has demons. It has, we have mythology, we have folklore, mm-hmm. we have... Um, we, we have we have medieval culture. We have various uh, cultures of international folk beliefs. We have uh, some psychology. We have neuroscience, uh, the the mysteries of sleep and dreaming. All of it um, wound up into a tangle. Absolutely, and you add on to that the fact that even the even the old reports, even the historical reports, when you read medieval and early modern sources on this kind of thing, they're kind of salacious. Mm-hmm. You know. Oh yes. It, yeah. There's there's nothing better than old timey salacious. Yeah, and it, I mean it's really creepy salacious too when you get yeah. into into uh, some of the the ideas we're going to be discussing here, where the the notion of incubi and succubi are informed in large part by first of all uh, witchcraft theorists, right, and and also the the testimony of torture victims, right. So you have just like the engine of creativity for these ideas is just ob- obscene and, and filtered through a strong lens of misogyny. Yes, yes, uh, it's um yeah. So it's a very it's a very disturbing topic, uh, in in many respects. And, and yet we can't quite look away. Like it's such a captivating idea because it also does play into a, a universal experience, that of, of sleep paralysis, which we'll get into in a bit, that of, that of just strange nightmares and visions. Well, Robert, I agree that it's something that we can't look away from and not just us types of weirdos who are interested in these strange historical mm-hmm. phenomenon, possible psychological explanations. There are people today who, I mean, if you're willing to believe what they write on message boards online and stuff, who think that they are being haunted by an incubus or a succubus. They think that there is a demon who's coming to them for a sexual relationship that they don't want. I, I've seen Yahoo Answers pages where people <laughs> literally are saying, you know, I have an incubus visiting me. I need to know how to get rid of it. And people are offering uh, different types of uh, advice for how to rid yourself of this demon, you know, to having spiritual types of remedies, of converting to a certain religion, of doing certain incantations. Mm-hmm. It's a thing that some people still believe in today. Well, it's it's always important to note with these these episodes where we're talking about at heart a paranormal experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, regardless of how many uh, explanations we have uh, in an actual scientific uh, underlying causes for these experiences, the experiences themselves are real. The experiences themselves are traumatic, mm-hmm. are potent, and and have an effect on, on the individual. Yeah, I, I'm sure you can probably guess we're not going to conclude at the end of today's episode that there are real nighttime demons, but no. certainly there are real experiences. Right, right, yeah, even even though we're going to go ahead and just put that to bed, that, that demons do not exist, uh, 
they kind of do. Like if they exist in your mind, if they exist in your experience of them, then that's that's good enough. Like that's it's a reality you're going to have to deal with. Yeah, yeah. So let's hit the basics of the incubi and the succubi. Are, the, are these the plural we're going to use? Surely we're not going to be saying succubuses. No, no, no. Could be um, succubae maybe, but I think incubi, incubi and, succubi. and succubi. I also see uh, text just referring to them as incubus demons and succubus demons. Hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, incubi and succubi. So let's start with the, the incubus. Translated as that which lies upon, uh, incubi carry out the same basic uh, torment tactics that you find in the traditional nightmare or nightmara. Um, it's the, so this is not just the word for the dream, but a type of creature, right? Right. Yeah. Even the yeah the we get the word nightmare from the nightmara, which was this essentially just one of the many different. There's so many different names for the nightmarish, uh, you know, night terror entity, mm-hmm. and sometimes they're sexual elements, sometimes they're not. The broadly speaking, the less sexual version of it is just the night, the nightmare, the nightmare that right. comes. The creature that comes to oppress you in your dreams. Yes. And to physically, you know, press down on you and keep you from getting up. Yeah. Direct tie in there to sleep paralysis, which we'll get into later on in the episode. Um, but the, the incubus not only crushes the victim, not only holds the victim in place, but adds this additional sexual element. So the Latin root of the word incubus is uh, is the same place we actually get the English word incubate. I thought this was kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. In for upon and cubare for to lie or to lean. Um, so, you know, a mother hen is actually the incubus for her own egg. It lies upon it. Oh, okay. That makes sense. It's sort of a literal translation and also uh, associated with the idea of the incubo, which it sometimes means a nightmare, you know, a bad dream. Yeah. <clears throat> but it's also related to another construction from the Latin incumbere, which means to lie down upon, giving a whole new meaning to the concept of incumbent. The word incumbent comes oh. from that. So the incumbent politician is sort of the incubus of the office that he or she holds. Or an incumbent bicycle. Is that a thing? No, I'm thinking of a recumbent, Re- recumbent bicycle. Yeah. And certainly an incubus bicycle, not a thing. <laughs> um, uh, but so the incubus, the incubus is the, the, the night visiting demon who has some kind of sexual connotation to mm-hmm. it. It has sexual activity with the person that it visits. And typically the incubus is described as being male, right? Right. That's the, the, the very broad, uh, even, you know, Dungeons and Dragons monster manual distinction that you have the, the, the male incubus and the female succubus. Now, I, I do have to say that a lot of this kind of breaks down when you start looking at different regional interpretations mm-hmm. and different texts. Sometimes they'll use uh, uh, incubus as being possible, uh, possibly a male or a female form. It's not. It shouldn't come as a surprise that people kind of seem to be making up the rules for these things as they went along. Yeah, yeah. Imagine that. It's almost as if uh, demonology was was pulled wholesale out of uh, somebody's butt. Um, Perhaps the the devil's butt, because the devil's butt, just to ground everything, does show up fairly frequently uh, in uh, witchcraft uh, theory. Uh, Okay. Yeah. But uh, on that note, it's uh, it's interesting to notice we're talking about a a male incubus preying on females and a female succubus preying on males. Okay. That uh, 
that that homophobia ran so deep in medieval culture that uh, as uh, author Walter Stevens pointed out in his uh, excellent book, Demon Lovers, which we'll d- discuss a little more in a bit, uh, he, he pointed out that witchcraft theorists of the day, uh, they conto- concocted all sorts of body demon on human scenarios for accused witches of both genders, yet uh, they balked at the notion of male demons engaging in in gay sex. Yeah, I thought that was interesting yeah. um, because the, so if I recall correctly, Stevens has a section in the book where essentially he writes how people of the late medieval, early modern period considered that uh, male demons, the incubi, mm-hmm. would would find sex with a human male abhorrent. To them. Yeah. Which, uh, but they're, uh, they're, he's, he's like, their very nature is that they're abhorrent. Yeah, you would think that a, a culture that, that vilifies homosexuality mm-hmm. would then have the embodiments of, of evil, these demons just embrace it completely. Uh, but I think the way Stevens characterized it was just that, uh, that, for example, Heinrich Kramer, the mm-hmm. author of the Malleus Maleficarum, mm-hmm. the hammer of the witches, yes. that we're going to talk about at length in a bit, uh, he, he was just sort of so, repulsed by the idea of homosexual intercourse that he he thought oh that's below even the demons yeah yeah so it's there's there's a lot of there's a lot of personal angst that goes into uh, being a a proper witchcraft theorist as well mm-hmm. uh but then of course so we have the incubus that's the male demon but mm-hmm. then the female counterpart is known as the succubus that's right and uh, while the incubus is that which lies upon the succubus draws its name from the latin sub under and uh, cubare which we, I think we already mentioned here, to lie down. So its tactic so like is to lie beneath. Yeah. So its tactic is somewhat altered from that of your typical nightmare. It abandons the crushing tactic of its cousin and cranks up the sexuality with a, a submissive flair. Uh, and it exclusively targets male victims and, uh, and may take on uh, other forms. Uh, unknown or visible females, uh, also uh, withered hags or crones, that's typical. And there's this wonderful um, motif that you see throughout incubi and succubi uh, myth in, in Western traditions, and that is that, okay, so God's allowing all of this to happen, essentially. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to cast stones, but this is all happening in God's creation. Right. So... God would surely not allow demons to create like a perfect facsimile of the human form. Surely there'll be some, there'll be some out, there'll be some loophole, right? And so you see this idea that the, the incubi or succubi can replicate, you know, a fetching male or female specimen completely except for one detail. And generally it's the feet. Mm. So it'll look like a beautiful maiden, but it will have the feet of a duck. So that, um, you know, a, a, a proper Christian individual would be able to notice <laughs> and right. would realize, oh, this has the feet of the duck. I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and shut this down. Whereas I guess a sinful person would be, would be like, oh, well. Less observant. Yeah. Less observant or, huh, she has the feet of a duck, but why not? What movie Close is enough. it? What movie is it where there's a sorceress with the feet of a duck? Oh, you know what I'm thinking of? I'm thinking of Ray Harryhausen's Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. Oh, yeah? In which there is a sorceress witch character who I remember being, I haven't seen this in years, but I remember her being pretty great. But there's a scene where she changes herself into a seagull so she can spy on a ship. And then she changes herself back, but she can't fully do it. And she retains a bird foot. Ooh, See, I wonder if that is a direct reference or kind of like a, a cultural echo of this older idea. Uh, it also reminds me of the uh, the movie Freaked. I don't know if you ever saw this. No. 
tremendous film. It's, um, Keanu Reeves has a small part in it, but it's mainly, uh, Who's the other guy in Bill and Ted? Um, uh, Winters? Alex Winters? Alex Winters, yeah. So it's Alex Winters' project. And it has Randy Quaid as a... I'm, I'm suddenly big on on Rand, my favorite Randy Quaid films recently. <laughs> Randy Quaid plays like an evil, a freak show operator, mad scientist. And uh, there's a there's a scene towards the end where he mm. essentially shapeshifts into a supermodel and um, almost pulls it off, but then you realize the supermodel has monstrous feet. Oh, but uh, that's a great film. If, there it goes. if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend Freaked. One last side note, you know, a good game to play yeah. with uh, with Randy Quaid is you take Dennis Quaid movies and you just name a Dennis Quaid movie. And every time you do, you imagine that in the Dennis Quaid role, it's Randy Quaid. Uh, see, <laughs> Randy Quaid is slash was a tremendous actor. I, I mm-hmm. think he, he he didn't get a, a proper shake. You know, I mean, he, we remember him for these comedic roles. But I was just talking the other day in an episode about his portrayal as Frankenstein's monster. And it was great. I don't oh, think yeah. I've ever seen that. Which movie is that? It was a Patrick Bergen early nineties uh, adaptation, made oh, for TV. I, I think it was on TNT. Huh. But uh, I, I haven't seen it in ages. But I remember it being quite good. Okay. Well, back to the Incubus and the Succubus. So these spirits that we've talked about are mostly going to be coming out of Western, sort of uh, Middle Eastern and European folklore. Right. But surely there are other examples of these types of creatures around the world, because as we talked about at the beginning, they seem to have something to do with a common human experience of of waking up from dreams and having these kinds of feelings of terror and panic and vulnerability in the night. That's obviously not isolated to Europe or uh, or the Middle East. So surely other places around the world have similar types of creatures. Oh, indeed. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll and we'll reference a few of them here. One that immediately comes to mind for me and I imagine for a number of our, our listeners um, are the fox spirits of various uh, Asian traditions. Uh, mm-hmm. In particular, the, the one I'm probably a little more versed in. Is the uh, Huli Jing, which is um, uh, the, the Chinese fox spirit. Mm-hmm. So this is a, a, a wonderful um, monstrous creature that shows up in in various folk tales and myths of China. And it's uh, a multi-tailed fox that also has uh, the form of a beautiful woman. And uh, it uh, it depends on the tale exactly how villainous the the fox uh, spirit actually is. But uh, you often see versions of it where yeah, it's, it seduces men, curses them, um, uses a spell on them, or in other times re- rewards worship or uh, drains your vitality. So it's, hmm. it's the, the creature is kind of a a a magical feminine embodiment. So it's a it's a creature of the, the yin universal uh, principle. And in some of these uh, versions of the tales, it actually drains uh, yang energy. Okay, so yin is generally considered female. Generally, this is like it's far more complicated than that. Of course, when you get into to Taoism, but uh, but that's kind of like the, the the surface level understanding. You know? Okay, but uh, but certainly it it has a lot in common with the succubus myth, right? And then you also see various versions of the incubus as well. Right. Uh, and in uh, Chinese uh, folklore, you see uh, something known as the, the Wutong Shin. So these are... I feel like I've heard of that before. 
as with a lot of things uh, mythical, there, there, you know, there are various versions of exactly what they are. Mm-hmm. But uh, but you have some accounts where they descended to Earth in a blaze of fire, uh, swiftly assuming, uh, assuming the human form of five brothers. And here, like the Western Incubus, they they function as demonic seducers. Yet while the the Incubus exploits a female victim's sinful nature, the Wu Tong preyed upon uh, innocent uh, victims, traumatizing them with nightmarish sexual assaults. And their form ranged from that of a, a handsome youth to a one-legged monster, uh, just as their their very nature varied from like a complete demonic enemy to a, a god of wealth that some uh, individuals actually worshipped. You know, this makes me think about a thing that uh, is definitely there in all the stuff we've read about the incubus and the succubus and seems to be present uh, in these types of creature legends around the world is there's not a very consistent thread as to... Um, whether these creatures are rapists or seducers. Yeah. You know, do, do they essentially uh, have sex with their human victim completely against their will or do they kind of hypnotize them and seduce them? Yeah. And I imagine that depends a lot on the, the exact nature of the paranormal experience, right? Like mm-hmm. if it's like highly traumatic, traumatic and it feels like an assault or if there is a, like a consensual element to the experience, uh, or and then certainly how one is coloring it afterwards in memory, mm-hmm. uh, because it could be one thing, I guess, in, in terms of the dream experience, the paranormal experience. And then you're trying to make sense of this seemingly otherworldly encounter. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and certainly it would, you know, for instance, it might depend on how you saw the Wutong Shin. Yeah. Uh, if you saw them as demonic invaders. Right. Or if you saw them like like many did as this um, this God of wealth and greed that you could. Um, you could, you know, venerate through hedonistic excess and and actually benefit from. Wait, you mean like people would worship the Wu Tong Shin? Yeah, apparently. But uh, again, you get into you get into you know in a, sort of an amorphous definition of what they were, and certainly they're going to be different different things to different people at different times, depending on where you're you're looking at. But for instance, you 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 did see Wu Tong temples. Uh, in uh, Jiangsu province up until their state order destruction in 1685. Mm. I was reading about this in a paper by uh, Richard von uh, Glan, uh, titled The Enchantment of Wealth, the God Wu Tong and the Social History of Jiangnan. And, uh, and he pointed out that there were these, there was this idea that a man would enter into a pact with the Wu Tong, uh, suffer the, the seduction or, or outright assault of his wives and daughters, and then he'd finally lose all his ill-gotten wealth through additional calamity. So it's, um, so in that it's kind of like this, this typical, uh, uh, tale of, uh, of someone who enters into a pact with the demonic and then suffers for it. Mm-hmm. But, but also, like, clearly enough people also believed in this as something that you could, you could benefit from. Like they had a more, I guess, beneficial definition of what these entities were. The Wu Tong, the five penetrating ones. Well, we'll definitely see this show up in some of the, uh, late medieval and early modern witchcraft. Yeah. ideas, right? Because th- they had the idea that the incubus is not always necessarily just a night invader, but it might be an entity that you make a relationship with and that gives you power. Indeed, indeed, because that's that that yeah, like you say, that is uh, that is core to the whole witchcraft theorist uh, idea. That, uh, that because it's one thing to imagine these scenarios, but then when you start applying your your waking mind um, rationality to it, then you have to explain what's going on, like. What what are these things? 
Why are they interacting with humans? Yeah. How are they interacting with humans? Like, that's a whole topic in and of itself. This is, as we've pointed out several times, this is where you start to get all these weird conflicting rules and characterizations. Yeah. Yeah. Because you, you, you're, you're building something out of air, right? You're, you're, you're constructing something that doesn't exist. And in many cases, you have these witch, witchcraft theorists in the Western tradition that are trying to support the, the theory by invoking, you know, everyone from Thomas Aquinas to Aristotle, uh, to, have a learned theory of why a demon would have sexual relations with a human. Yeah. Now, obviously, uh, China and Western Europe do not, did not have a monopoly on, um, sexual demons. Sure. And one of the things that's interesting to me is that there are a couple of different elements at play. And I think the core idea of the incubus and the succubus, the or cubus mm-hmm. or, or as an eternal, the or incubus or succubus, uh, the mythology. One is the nighttime element, and mm-hmm. it's definitely true that throughout all types of cultures we see nighttime demons, right? The night witch, the night wanderer, the night hag. They, you know, they show up at night and they do horrible things. But the other is the pure sexual element, either either an element of being some sort of rapist type creature or being a sexual seducer. Mm-hmm. And though these things are sort of natural companions, I think it makes sense to look at them separately. So I wanted to talk about the idea of gods, demons, angels, and other unearthly beings that come to Earth to have sex with human beings. And it turns out this is extremely common in ancient mythology. It's all over the place. So you probably remember all the stories of Zeus in Greek oh, mythology, yeah. right? Zeus, what is wrong with him? <laughs> he he is constantly transforming himself into a bull, a swan, or some other animal in order to have sex with a human woman. There are these extremely weird stories. Do you remember how weird these are? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it could be it was like it's it's already weird enough that he's appearing and forcing himself on uh, on Mortals, uh-huh. but then that he's taking an animal form on top of that, unnecessary. And of course, there there are plenty of other examples throughout there. It's actually there's even in the Hebrew Bible, oh, yeah. uh, there are stories of gods having sex with human beings. So in Genesis six one through four, there is a passage that do you remember the passage about the Nephilim? Oh, the giants in the earth, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So where did the giants on the earth come from? Well, Genesis six one through four tells us. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So uh, that word Nephilim, sometimes in other translations, is rendered giants. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it's telling the story of how whatever it means by the sons of God, it, mm-hmm. this is often interpreted to be some sort of angelic beings, servants of God, lesser deities of some form. They saw that earth women were beautiful and they decided that and they, possibly easy uh, could be. Mm-hmm. It's not made especially clear in the, in that rendering. 
but yeah, so they decided so, and they were like, well, let's go have children with those women, and they did, and their children were not like normal human babies. The the offspring of these heavenly creatures and the earth women were giants. Yeah, they were so they were essentially kind of like demigods. Right. The ideas. And and this is interesting because this becomes an area of frequent argument among uh, uh theologians and witchcraft theorists later on because this is they they everyone ends up looking back to this as a possible scriptural um definition mm-hmm. or scriptural proof that demonic entities are capable of interacting with humans like on a like on a material level because mm-hmm. there were there were theories of like okay well maybe demons are immaterial and how is an immaterial being supposed to uh engage in a physical act with a material being oh. do they have bodies like this is a whole we could we could Walter Stevens goes into this a lot in his book Demon Lovers yeah. and it's, it's tremendously interesting yeah, the obviously later theologians expended a lot of energy mm-hmm. on the subject of whether demons have physical bodies, whether if maybe they're made of aerial material, yeah. and if they're made of aerial material, that can still interact with your body as with a fan does. <laughs> I think that's the point Augustine made. It's it's amazing how important these people thought this was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and we'll we'll I guess we'll unpack this in, in a bit. But yeah, you're coming down to physical proof. Of the spiritual realm. Like that's what it all essentially comes down to. Right. Like if, if demon, it's kind of, kind of, it's kind of like the hand of God thing, right? Right. If the hand of God is entering our world, there has to be some proof. There has to be a, a, a fingerprint, a thumbprint that we can look to and say, look, there is the proof. Right. Even if God is immaterial, he's having material consequences. Right. And if the, the, the handprint, the fingerprints of God are not forthcoming, well, then how about the fingerprints or the footprints of angels? And if those are not forthcoming, then what about demons? Right. That's where we, we, we enter into this, this idea. Well, can, can a demon have a physical form? Because that seems to be the requirement. It has to somehow interact with our physical world for us to have physical proof of it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I want to follow up on what I was just talking about with the story about, uh, the, the gods, the sons of God coming mm-hmm. down to mate with earth women. Uh, because the, the Genesis six version reads sort of like, the Cliff Notes version, it's like the back of the book summary. Uh-huh. Um, there are much longer and more detailed versions of this story that appear in apocryphal text, texts that are not usually considered part of at least part of the standard Christian canon. And one example of this from a, a great old uh, Jewish text that is just awesome is the, the first book of Enoch. Uh, if you have never read the first book of Enoch, Look up a translation online. I think there are a couple translations available on the Internet. It is just great. It is it is really interesting. Um, so the story goes in First Enoch, chapter six, quote, and it came to pass when the children of men had multiplied that in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters and the angels, the children of the heaven, saw and lusted after them and said to one another, come, let us choose us wives from among the children of men and beget us children. And then later in chapter seven, it continues and all the others together with them took unto themselves wives, and each chose for himself one. And they began to go unto them and defile themselves with them, and they taught them charms and enchantments and the cutting of roots and made them acquainted with plants. And they became pregnant, and they bare great giants whose height was three thousand L's. I'm not sure how tall an L is, but 
There's 3,000 of them. <laughs> That's got to be pretty tall. Anyway, going on about the giants who consumed all the acquisitions of men. And when men could no longer sustain them, the giants turned against them and devoured mankind. And they began to sin against birds and beasts and reptiles and fish. Not the birds. And to devour one another's flesh and drink the blood. Then the earth laid accusation against the lawless ones. So this is a much more fleshed out version of what appears to be the same tradition that mm-hmm. shows up in Genesis. Uh, the, the, the sons of God, these heavenly beings came down, mated with earth women and gave birth to these offspring who were very destructive and sinned against the world that the Lord had created. And in, in this version, I think it's very interesting because there, there appears to be something transactional going on between these heavenly beings and the women who became their wives. Because it says these heavenly beings taught them things. And it's this mixture of things that seem like real skills, like you taught them how to cut roots and use plants. That might be some kind of uh, that might be referring to agriculture itself mm-hmm. or to some kind of medicinal herbology, but also taught them charms and enchantments. Yeah, like it's it's, of course, with any of this, it's easy to apply the the ancient alien uh, explanation, right? Right. And say, well, clearly this is showing ancient alien visitors to Earth who taught early humans some of the basic uh, building blocks of civilization, agricultural techniques, etc. Uh, and in exchange, they got to have sex with them. I, or at least it were to, to put a more like refined uh, spin on it, initiate a breeding program with humans. Uh, yeah, I I don't take that idea very seriously, but I also think that it's. It always occurs to me that that explanation might not actually be all that distinct from what the authors of this passage actually had in mind. No, because, uh, I mean, really, the the modern alien abduction scenario, the, the, the probing scenario, even I mean, you, this is this is all just an updating of the classic incubi succubi succubi uh, notion mm-hmm. that. Visitors from another world are coming to you, to your house, to taking you away, maybe, maybe experimenting on you there, doing things of a sexual nature to you. And mm-hmm. you don't understand what is happening and you have no control over the scenario. Yeah. And I, I think you might be at pains to explain to the author of First Enoch what the difference is that you mean, like what, why is the thing you're calling an alien different than what a god is? Yeah. Okay, so anyway, in these ancient traditions, it's obviously been believed that angels or some lesser deities came to Earth, had sex with human beings, and were able to create viable, if not very good, offspring with them, creating these powerful, evil kind of offspring. You know, another, if I, sorry to cut in again, Joe, but something that comes to mind here, too, to put a, a slightly more scientific spin on it, what if one were to interpret this with uh, early hominid species? So... What if it were, say, Neanderthals and uh, and uh, Homo sapiens? Oh, okay. And so maybe the aliens were not from another world, but they were just another human tribe or another uh, near-human tribe, another just another hominid species that had techniques to share. If only we had, uh, if only we had a tribe of uh, of giant witches. Yeah. To- <laughs> I have nothing to back that up with, but I'm just saying that's a, maybe a slightly more scientific read one could take on it if one was going to spin off some some notions. Well, I mean, it's true if you do 
think of the idea. I don't necessarily subscribe to this. I, mm-hmm. I actually tend to uh, think often that legends very frequently reflect creative imagination. But yeah. a lot of people tend to think that uh, legends like this grow out of real experiences that get embellished over time. I think that probably happens sometimes, too. But yeah, I think we've uh, talked about this on the show yeah, before. I, I think the idea, the role of creative imagination gets undersold. Yeah. In the creation of myth and legend. But anyway, yeah, if you just say that maybe something real happened, it got embellished and mythologized over time and became this kind of story, that's plausible, I guess. Yeah. But anyway, sorry, back to uh, back to the incubus and the succubus. So we, we, we have this belief. Angels come down to earth, have sex with human beings. But is this type of theological belief, this feature of ancient myth, is this connected to the more recent idea of just the night demons, the incubi and succubi that visit people in their beds and and have sexual encounters with them. Well, yes, there are some theologians who draw connections between them. And one example we could look at is Augustine. Do you say Augustine or Augustine? Uh, I, I personally always say Augustine, but that's just me. Well, let's let's keep some variety. I'll say Augustine. Okay, <laughs> okay. so Saint Augustine of Hippo. Okay, uh, in his long treatise De, De Civitate Dei, the City of God, uh, Augustine asks a question. This is you know big political theological treatise. Augustine is asking the question of whether angels and other heavenly beings can physically mate with human beings, and he writes, and this is translated by Marcus Dodds. Quote, there is, too, a very general rumor which many have verified by their own experience or which trustworthy persons have heard the experience of others corroborate that sylvans and fawns, Uh, who are commonly called incubi, have often made wicked assaults upon women and satisfied their lust upon them, and that certain devils, called deuces by the Gauls, are constantly attempting and affecting this impurity is so generally affirmed that it would be imprudent to deny it. So Augustine is not really arguing for the existence of incubi. Instead, it sounds like he considers their existence so obvious as to be undeniable. And rather, he's using that as a premise or a starting point in his argument about whether angels really came down and had sex with human beings as described in, say, the Book of Enoch. And just for the record, Augustine kind of, he denies Enoch. He, of course, affirms what's in the Bible, but he tries to say that the sons of God part in the Bible is more referring to some kind of different version of a physical man, which he identifies with the sons of Seth. But here we have this line where, uh, you know, a theologian living in, when did Augustine live? I guess the, the, uh, fourth, fourth or fifth century CE. Uh, he's trying to draw this line from these older stories to the modern experience of the incubus. And that's going to bring us to maybe my favorite example of the, uh, the early modern incubi commentator, King James. Ah, the, the King James. The yeah. King James. Okay. King James one of England. James one, the first one. Uh, also, James, was he the sixth of Scotland, whichever one? I think they had a lot of Jameses. But anyway, this is the same King James who authorized the production of the King James Bible in English. But he, did you know this, wrote and published a book in the 1590s that's basically demons and black magic for dummies. Yeah, I have I have run across this before, but I've never read it in depth. This was new to me when mm-hmm. uh, when I was reading up for this episode. So the book is often called The Demonology. 
And it's a series of fictionalized dialogues, kind of like the dialogues of Plato, you know, Mm -hmm. where there are these two fictional characters who are having a conversation. And it's in that conversation that you work out the points you want to make. And this book was designed to sort of educate as well as argue. So it's to teach the reader all about how evil beings are going to use sorcery and necromancy and demonic power against humankind but then also to make some political arguments such as for the moral imperative of witch hunting. And uh, a, a side note that I thought was interesting, the demonology appears to have been a major influence on Shakespeare's Macbeth. Oh, okay. So like some of the stuff they talk about in there shows up in Macbeth. The weird sisters are are uh, sort of by the book King James uh, witches. Okay. But anyway, uh, so there's a dialogue in the, the King James demonology where these, these two guys, uh, Philo, Philomathes and Epistemon are having a chat about demons and the incubi and succubi come up. So Epistemon says, uh, quote, that abominable kind of the devil's abusing of men and women was called of old incubi and succubi, according to the difference of the sexes that they conversed with. By two means, this great kind of abuse might possibly be performed. And he, he goes, I'll summarize. He says, first of all, they can appear as a devil, but they can steal the sperm out of a dead man's body oh. and then take it to a woman. Uh, okay. So, but appearing as a devil. And then, uh, Epistemon adds a note. I, I'm not quite sure what to make of this. It seems to be a historical example. He says, quote, as we read of a monastery of nuns, which were burnt for their being that way abused, I guess saying it like the devil stole dead men's sperm and then came to the nuns and maybe impregnated them and they were burned huh. for this reason. Uh, but then anyway, the second way he says it can work is essentially by possession of a dead body. He said he can, quote, borrow a dead body and visibly appear as a human when you converse with your drowsing victim. And this word con- conversation, conversing is their word for sex here. But Epistemon notes that either way, first of all, the sperm's going to seem intolerably cold to the victim. Uh, and that's uh, because if a demon steals it from a quick person, meaning a living person, it's going to get cold on route to the destination. And then, quote, I, th- I thought this was great. If he occupying the dead body as his lodging expel the same out thereof in the due time, it must likewise be cold by the participation with the qualities of the dead body where out of it comes. Okay. It, now, one thing that's, I think, noteworthy about both of these uh, theories, uh, if you will, is that they, they they skirt the issue of the physical body, right? Right. Because either, I mean, it's it's taking the physical element of reproduction, the sperm, mm-hmm. from a, a, a living human and or it's animating a dead body. So right. e- either way, the sperm is not coming from the demon. Right. It's coming from a human. Uh, and so Epistemon goes on to claim that uh, incubi and succubi are not separate beings divided by sex, but basically the same creature being able to appear either way. And then they talk about how come there are more of these spirit attacks in places like Lapland, Finland and the Orkney Islands. And Epistemon's answer is, well, of course, it's because that's where you find the greatest ignorance and barbarity. Oh, of course. Uh, but then there's a very interesting conclusion in the chapter, too, I thought. Uh, so at the very end, they address what sounds to be talking about sleep paralysis. And, uh, James's, uh, Socrates character, Epistemon, has a kind of straightforward answer about it. So, uh, Philomathy says, uh, is it not the thing which we call a mare, which folk, uh, which takes folks sleeping in their beds, 
uh, a kind of these spirits, whereof ye are speaking. And Epistemon says, no, that is but a natural sickness, which the mediciners hath given the name of incubus unto ab incubando, because it being a thick phlegm falling into our breast upon the heart while we are sleeping, intercludes so our vital spirits and takes all power from us, as makes us think that there were some unnatural burden or spirit lying upon us and holding us down. So despite believing wholeheartedly in incubi and succubi, James seems to dismiss them as an explanation for the experience some people have, like we talked about at the beginning, of waking up from a nightmare with the sensation of a person or an entity on top of them. Essentially, James's idea with this is, no, nah, that's just phlegm. So he's basing it in the, 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 the humors. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But James was not the only authority figure in late medieval or early modern Europe to square the incubus. That's right. And this uh, this brings us back to uh, Heinrich Kramer, uh, who's widely published uh, 1486 text uh, Malus Maleficarum or Hammer of the Witches. Uh, it, it's a central text in the sort of demonology and witchcraft theory that dominated Western traditions from the late 15th century onward, uh, especially so far as as, again, witchcraft theory and the persecution of alleged witches were concerned, uh, as well as the persecution of, of men and children, um, who were also targeted. But yeah. for them, but by and large, um, females suffered the most. Right. Uh, for, you know, mostly imagined crimes and, uh, and these were, were based in large part on not only the theories that were concocted by these witchcraft theorists, but also from testimonies that were, uh, obtained through the torture of the the alleged witches. Yeah, so Kramer's Witch Hunter's Handbook here, The Hammer of the mm-hmm. Witches, is, this is a profoundly misogynistic book and has stuff in it about essentially like why women are especially prone to witchcraft. And this will come up with reference to the incubus in a moment. So, but but who is Kramer? So Kramer was a German Dominican churchman and uh, inquisitor. And uh, he, in his writings, in his writing of the uh, the Malus Maleficarum, he drew on the works of various philosophers, theologians, and other witchcraft theorists. Top theologians of the day didn't really agree with Kramer's work, but he was he was tireless. And he was uh, re- he really connected with his intended audience, <laughs> both uh, both at the pulpit and in the written media. Yeah. So I mean, his his work really resonated, especially in what was kind of a broken age, uh, you know. And in this we. We have to look back on on the time period, uh, on medieval culture, on early modern culture, and you know we touched on this before. But there's there's always this temptation to look back on people from previous eras, and and not really view them as fully human. You know, yeah, not, I know exactly what you mean. You Thinking know, that people in the past must have been stupid. Yeah, yeah, they, they didn't have all of the complex technology and stuff like that we have. They had different social values than we have. They must have just been somehow deficient in the brain. Yeah, and I think that is not a safe assumption to make. No, no, not at all. I mean, I mean, of course, it plays into the same for the, the same reasons that uh, one will look down on or not understand or just dismiss individuals from other cultures mm-hmm. or even just other you know demographic areas within one's own culture. But uh, but no, the, the, this was a time when things were a little bit broken. I mean, the medieval world was threatened by heresies and uprisings. Faith itself, especially among learned members of society, seemed under siege at times. Uh, there was a lot of change going on. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, we look back and it's these, oh, this is just a dark time where people just stood around burning witches for, 
for, for, for years and years. But, but no, there were a lot of exciting new ideas, a lot of threatening new ideas. Yeah. So working out the anxieties of the time on unfortunate victims who were accused of witchcraft. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's in, in this sense, it's not really that different from other dynamic times, even our own time today. There are parallels you could make that, I mean, our world is always in change. And as we, mm-hmm. as technology has advanced and our awareness of global, uh, uh, situations uh, are enhanced. We're constantly encountering the anxiety uh, and the and the and the blowback from advancement. Okay, but so say Heinrich Kramer or somebody like him is up giving a speech about what's going on with witchcraft mm-hmm. today. What like what can what would he say? So the the resulting witchcraft theory of the day was was a, like a fever dream of black masses, satanic plots, uh, misogynistic suspicion, and the the details were as wild as could be devised by either theorists or torture victims in the dungeons of the Inquisition. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you just see some really like awful, weird ideas that it that that it, at at once uh, on one hand you can say well that takes some imagination and some depravity to come up with right. but on the other hand it's kind of like you can you can easily imagine somebody being tor- tormented yeah. and you will say anything to make your torment stop and so you will tell the uh, the inquisitor the the torturer the theorist what they want to hear so the same imaginative capacities that lead people today to come up with grosser and weirder horror movies and and devil cult movies could at the time also have been put toward alleging real activities. Yeah, well, I mean, you see, you see, you know, grosser ideas in these uh, some of these witchcraft uh, theories of the day. You can look at that on one hand as uh, as these theorists just coming up with with suitably scandalous ideas to fit their agenda, right. but also with people who are just like, I better tell this person something shocking so that they will stop, and I'm going to keep. Keep telling them shocking things and then making adjustments to meet their demands for the script, because ultimately that's what the witchcraft theorists wanted. They didn't want just any crazy nonsense that would come out of an accused uh, witch's mouth. They would want very particular tales because they had a theological script. Yeah, they had a script. They had an agenda. It's kind of like, uh, you know, a modern cop show where they're grilling the suspect and they don't want the truth. They want them to uh, they want them to admit to the crime. They want them to, to 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 provide testimony, to provide an account of the crime that matches up with the evidence they have. Or to point the finger at the guy that we've got. You know? Yeah. So so with witchcraft theorists of the, of the day, you see this huge emphasis on demonic sex. And while, uh, you know, we'll get to some of the possible underlying reasons uh, in, in a few minutes here, uh, let's just discuss a couple of theories in, uh, in The Hammer of the Witches as to, as to why demons would want to engage in all this icky human sex to begin with. So a lot of it is is grounded in theor- the- theological arguments over whether demons had physical bodies, which we've already right. touched on. Uh, and that's a whole quagmire in and of itself. But then you had, uh, for instance, uh, 15th century Bishop uh, Alonzo Tostado, who, citing the work of uh, St. Augustine, uh, weighed in on the topic of masturbation. Namely, that it's not only an unnatural act, uh, in, in, uh, in his view and view of many in the church at that time, but that it can accidentally result in pregnancy, quote, oh, no. through the agency of incubus and succubus demons. 
Okay, so they're saying if a man, uh, if a man unnaturally releases his sperm, it can be swiped, essentially. Essentially, yeah. Not unlike uh, what we were talking about earlier with, with the, the, the semen of dead men. Yeah. Um, quote, for in the form of a succubus, the demon can gather the semen thus emitted. Uh, thence, having turned himself into an incubus, he can deposit in the vessel of a woman, and the woman will conceive. So again, we see this idea of the incubus and succubus being two forms of the same thing, of it maybe even being what I like to think of as, a, as an incubus succubus, you know, where it's just okay. one entity with two different forms. All right. Um, so uh, Tostado took uh, Thomas Aquinas's uh, concerns over demonic reality. He magnified them, as did Kramer. So we end up with this concept, again, of the, the incubus and the, and the succubus being two forms of the same thing. They're gathering or even harvesting the semen from self-polluting men or men who are willing to 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 give themselves uh, over to these uh, these imperfect, uh, disguised, uh, demonic uh, uh, oh, succubi. Like if you fell for a woman with duck feet. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So you fell, fell, fell for the the duck-footed woman, and Didn't what she's actually doing is harvesting your semen. Yeah. Uh, which also ties in with some of these uh, these Taoist ideas of the of the fox spirits stealing your essence yeah. uh, in Chinese traditions. So they're taking the semen and then they're ideally here depositing them in a suitable woman. And here's a, a quote uh, uh, from uh, Kramer along along those lines: "Devils know how to ascertain the virtue in semen first by the temperament of him from whom the semen is obtained; secondly, by knowing." What woman is most fitted for the reception of that semen? Thirdly, by knowing what constellation is favorable to that corporeal effect. So we're left uh, with the with the uh, incus succubus here as sort of a, an in vitro fertilization entity that conducts its work in order to see the birth of more witches who will further this devil worshiping agenda and ultimately kind of a devil worshiping subspecies on Earth. Right. It gets into the idea of like where do witches come from? Why are the why are these so many of these women and these people just so inclined? to, uh, you know, worship the devil and be the devil's plaything. Well, it's because they're they're bred that way from other witches. And there's this kind of, um, th- th- that adds to the imperative to crack down on the witches because you're, you're cleansing the species. Yeah. In fact, I think even uh, the story goes that Merlin, right, the, uh, the story, Merlin of King Arthur's uh-huh. Merlin, right, was a figure who was supposedly born of a human woman and an, and an incubus, right? Ah, okay. Yeah, and and that would account for his magical powers, right? And it also accounts for the question, like, why can't anyone get in on this witchcraft thing, right? Why does it seem like only select people can benefit from it? Yeah, I want in on that. Can I get some (laughs) cursing power? All right, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to look at a real-world example of an organism that acts as a sexual essence thief. All right, we're back. All right. So, yeah, there's this. So we're, we're left with this idea with the, the, the incubi and the succubi as being an entity that wants to steal genetic material from males of another species and do something with it. Right. And uh, I, I love to take sort of seemingly ridiculous ideas such as this and then saying, well, actually, is there is there a counterpart in nature? Is there something in nature that works like this? Because. Most of the time, I find that no matter how weird the idea is, Mm -hmm. you're going to find it reflected in the natural world. There are more things in heaven and earth. That's right. Than are dreamt of in your your uh, your black mass fever dreams. 
And that's where we see the uh, Pagano Myrmex harvester ant, specifically two closely related species that are found along the Arizona-New Mexico border. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, this is this is interesting. According to a 2014 University of Vermont study published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B, the queen of one species is known to mate with males of the other species. And uh, he, like uh, many a succubus-duped uh, human sinner, can't tell the difference between his own females and those of the deceiver, at least not at first. Huh. So, wait, uh, this makes me wonder, because usually I think one of the main things that's considered the uh, denominator of different species is that they can't interbreed with one another, right? Well, you you have like the, 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 uh, the, the donkey and horse producing a mule scenario here, right. the production of unstable hybrids. Right, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So, so that's, that's what we're seeing in play here. But so by the time the male ant realizes that he's made a mistake, it's too late. Uh, he's already depositing sperm within his uh, interspecies lover. Uh, he, then he's already reduced, uh, his rate. He, he's trying to reduce his rate of semen loss, but the female simply, uh, grapples him in place till he delivers his entire reproductive de- deposit, <laughs> thus robbing him of the chance to pass his genes on to subsequent generations. Like, oh, okay. he really, he's been, he's been cheated here in terms of his basic genetic mission. So the queen then uses the pilfered sperm to produce sterile, hybrid worker ants for her colony. Crazy. Yes, and it's apparently an essential tactic because a copulation with her own species results in queens but no workers. So like the succubus, she depends on the the uh, gullibility and weakness and seed of another species to further her ends. Wow. Yeah. So like making armies with the seed of another and making real offspring with the seed of one's own. Yeah. Imagine it's kind of it, to, to draw back on the, the idea of horses and donkeys and mules. It's mm-hmm. like you have like a queen horse and he's an army of mules to do her bidding. <laughs> OK, well, I was trying to think of a of a biological parallel to come up with, and I couldn't really except for. The one particular example, the way King James uh, describes it, mm-hmm. where the the demon, the incubus or the succubus, does not really does not impregnate of itself uh, the the human species. It steals the sperm from one human and takes it to another. And th- this is a common way of uh, characterizing the incubus, right? Yeah, yeah. Either it's just like taking sinful semen and putting it in a sinful woman. Some variation seems to seem to imply or or outright state that there is a manipulation of the semen. Yeah. So it's so there's almost in the sense of uh, some sort of in vitro fertilization where there's been genetic augmentation going on. Right. Well, the parallel I couldn't help but think of is, well, then the incubus is a pollinator. Ah, it, it's, it's we so, should be thanking them. Yeah, exactly. It, it wouldn't be in the true biological sense because plants depend on sexual reproduction by pollination in order to encourage genetic diversity and good health. By all accounts, of course, most people who believed in this form of uh, demonic human pollination with the incusuccubus as the mediator believed that it resulted in less health and less virtue in the offspring. Uh, and this is how, quote, monsters were born, which is a, a phrase back then that was often used to refer to people with congenital disorders. Yeah, and that gets into the whole sort of changeling legacy as well. Like, yeah. how do you explain, um, you know, quote, unquote, monstrous births? What, right. what, what, how do you explain birth defects? You end up, as with, with, uh, with just human nature in general, you end up having to explain them, uh, th- through, spiritual failings and through the uh the the intersection of uh spiritual uh 
elements. All right. So we've looked at the the tradition of the incubus and the succubus, what people believed about them, what people's fears and anxieties were, and then some possible biological parallels Though we have to admit aren't too many really good ones here. Uh, but we should get back into the actual scientific explanations of what's going on here. What, what explains the emergence of the incubus and succubus myth? I mean, as I've acknowledged before, I do like the idea of creative imagination that always plays some role, Mm -hmm. but clearly this is inspired by conditions and experiences. So what conditions and experiences, both psychological and neurological and cultural, do we think contributed to the creation of the incubus and succubus phenomenon? Well, in, in answering this question, we, we kind of have to dip our, our toes into the, into the, into possible explanations for the witchcraft persecution uh, era itself. Right. You know, why, why did, were so many uh, female victims uh, murdered in in the name of this this ridiculous quest for non-existent witches, you know, accusing them with non-existent crimes, mm-hmm. and, and not only women, but again men and children, like young children, were were in in some places executed for these alleged crimes. Like why this big to do? And when you when you try and answer that questions that question, there there are several answers that that manifest. And mm-hmm. uh, and it's probably one of these cases where you just you, you you can't necessarily depend on just one of them. We've already touched on misogyny. It's impossible to look at witchcraft persecution and not talk about uh, misogynistic attitudes. Right. Yeah, it runs through and through this sort of uh, dismissive and actually even hateful attitude towards women. Yeah. And and then likewise, yes, there were uh, pagan uh, practices that that uh, continued, and in some cases, those were cracked down upon. There were other smaller, petty agendas, you know, just fear of outsiders, right? Uh, distrust of an individual who was a little off, and just overall, uh, you know, mass hysteria taking root as well. Yeah. But one of the ideas that Walter Stevens discusses in uh, Demon Lovers that uh, that I've always found really really fascinating is that. The demonic sex, sex between demons and humans, would serve as expert testimony to the existence of demons and by extension to the existence of angels and to the existence of God himself. So, in other words, a reckless and desperate attempt to prop up their failing faiths in a time of advancing understanding. This was interesting to me because I don't usually think of the late medieval period and the early modern period as a time of wavering faith in mm-hmm. in Western Europe. I I don't know. That just seems like a time when, when everybody was highly religious and had a lot of faith. But uh, according to Stevens, that's not necessarily the case. Like right. he sort of has this idea that there was – some emerging crisis of belief in the late medieval period. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the we, we've talked before about like when people's faiths are questioned, like the response is is oftentimes to double down on those beliefs. Yeah. So it, it, we 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 risk the mistake of looking back on on individuals in this time and saying, "Wow, everyone really believed in this stuff." Because look look at the witchcraft persecution. That's the act of someone who really believed in what they were doing. It could be the act it of could, somebody who was trying really hard to believe. Yeah, trying really hard, desperately to 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 create physical evidence for mm-hmm. the divine. Um, you know, it comes back to the scripts, right? Like time and time again. As uh, Stevens uh, uh, recounts in his book, typically women, but sometimes men were were, were tortured 
to get a particular script. You know, they, yeah. they wanted particular answers and the details could waver to certain extents. Uh, but they needed a particular story of, of a human demonic interaction, physical interaction to provide this kind of proof. Mm. Now it's, uh, uh, I, I won't go too far in depth on this theory because basically Walter Stevens makes it makes his case like page after page but in this book. What would you say are his primary pieces of evidence that the demonic sex panic of of this period was caused by uh, I don't know the the desire to bolster belief and and have evidence of the supernatural? But for the most part, the case he makes is that you know is looking at uh, materials from the time that that, that demonstrate. That there was a lot of change, that there were, that, that ideas were threatened, mm. that these, uh, these beliefs were threatened. And then looking at uh, some of the individual cases and showing, yes, there's like this clear agenda to, to, to push this script, to push this, uh, this version of what happens. Like they needed, they needed this commonality across all of these witch demon, wizard demon interactions. Like it wasn't enough just to get the individual witch to admit to sin that would be relevant in her own personal case, but that she was also feeding a, a storyline, essentially. Right. Like it wasn't just about hurting women. Yeah. Uh, though certainly, you know, that's part of the, the, the fabric here. It wasn't just about, uh, persecuting individuals who were outsiders. It wasn't just about distracting from, from other cultural, um, you know, uh, woes that, uh, that, you know, individuals in power didn't want to, to see, um, acknowledged. There was this idea that they needed to reinforce a, a worldview. They needed to, to provide evidence for a worldview. Hmm. So it's, um, you know, which is, which is ultimately even more terrifying than, to me anyway, uh, far more terrifying than just the idea that, oh, somebody believed in some crazy stuff and they did something horrible. It, but the idea that someone desperately wanted to believe in something that even is beautiful, but to get there, they would, they would, uh, they would engage in horrible acts and horrible ideas. It's interesting to me the use of, uh, the use of negative supernatural evidence as the, as that which leads to bolstering the belief in God. But then again, I, I guess that makes a certain kind of sense. I, uh, I think of the movie The Exorcist, one of yeah. my favorite horror movies. You know, one of the main characters, Father, Father Karras, you know, he's having a crisis of faith. He, he doesn't know what he believes anymore, but it seems to be sort of the evidence of the demonic that essentially that restores his faith in God. Huh. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. And it also said, be careful what you believe in. Right. Right. I mean, be careful what you ask for because your belief might be bolstered in, um, terrifying ways. I guess that's kind of a, a common thread in a number of different uh, tales. Again, there are other possible interpretations as well. And, and, and other psychological, explanations. psychological explanations. Uh, indeed. Um, one that, uh, that came up when I was uh, reading about the, the Wutong spirits, for instance, the Wutong Shen, uh, is the idea that prenuptial anxiety might have factored into these encounters. So in traditional Chinese society, women were uh, particularly vulnerable and powerless before and after the consummation of, uh, of marriage. And oftentimes the, their spouse was a, a complete stranger. And a Wutong attack served as, and this is according to uh, Richard von uh, Glan, who I referenced earlier, uh, quote, a culturally accepted strategy employed by women to avoid sleeping with their betrothed husbands or to escape uh, conjugal obligations altogether. Oh, that's interesting. So we were 
So yeah, so so that that is it's kind of like the, we have this supernatural, this paranormal experience, mm-hmm. and whether one ex- actually experiences it outright, it's it's there as a, as a script you can draw upon in the same way that an individual that experiences say sleep paralysis, they have to explain something that makes no sense to them. They have to explain a, what is at heart a frightful and traumatic experience. Here's a script that they can draw upon. Be that script demons or fairies or alien abductions. It's there. You can take it. And then it doesn't take too much convincing to convince others or to convince yourself that this is what happened. Yeah, I agree. So I I think obviously there are these very strong cultural and psychological explanations that we can have for how these types of demonic sex uh, uh, myths and ideas emerge. But also, I think we should maybe end by going back to the place we started with the idea of sleep paralysis yes. and the nightmare, uh, because this, I think, is going to be the real core of where these beliefs come from, the, the neurological phenomenon of what happens to the brain during sleep, especially when the transition in and out of sleep is uh, is manifesting in an abnormal way. Yeah, I think this is the the real bedrock Um no pun intended uh, for the for the whole the, the whole notion of demons, angels or or aliens engaging sexually with sleepers mm-hmm. in a, a paranormal experience, because here you have something that is uh, that is experienced by by universally by humans. Yeah, I've got some stats in a minute yeah. about how common it is. So for, for anyone who's not familiar with uh, the, the actual biological event of sleep paralysis, the way I, I always think about it. Is, is this. All right. So when you're dreaming, let's say you have a dream where you're, uh, you're a ninja. Okay. And you're, you know, you're rolling around, karate chop, stab, kick, grappling hook over a wall. This is all great, right? Your, your brain is working out daily angst or processing all the ninja movies it, it watched during the course of a day. But then a gang of pirates shows up. Yeah. And then it gets even crazier, right? But through all of this, you're, you don't, your body it does not need to be actually throwing karate chops and, and kicking and, and all this stuff, right? Right? You need In it. In fact, that would be a problem. That would be a problem. So your body has to be on lockdown. Mm-hmm. So ideally, when sleep is going down, your body is, is in a state of, uh, of, of paralysis during the dreams, except for, you know, movements of the eye and, you know, certainly respiration, in, respiration and, yeah. and other uh, involuntary. Um, uh, actions, but it but, shuts down your your motor center. Yeah, so your your body is shut down, your mind is dreaming. So in the case of sleep paralysis, paralysis, however, the individual is waking up. Okay, and what's supposed to happen is, all right, we're done with this simulation. You can have your body back. Yeah, but with sleep paralysis, the body remains locked down. Right, you can't move it. You're waking up. But everything is still frozen in place. Yeah. So people often describe this experience of having uh, gaining awareness, but being unable to move. And it's very frequently described as being a frightening experience. Yeah. And on top of that, you're waking up in the darkness or in the twilight. Uh, also, you're um, you're you're in, in you're in that state, that state between dream and sleep where you're highly susceptible to hallucination because the as you're waking up, the the abstract sleeping mind is trying to make sense of actual uh, visual and auditory stimuli. Right. 
So there's a weird shadow in your room. Well, you don't have you don't, don't really have the A team, the logical brain completely right. online to make sense of it. Instead, you've got like sleep uh, ninja demon brain mm-hmm. to try and make sense of all that and potentially draw from a cultural script such as demons or aliens or angels or Zeus to explain it all. And again, this is not all that uncommon. This, by the way, is the uh, it's what's uh, referred to as the hypnopompic state, uh, the state between you're waking up, you're coming out of dreams into the waking world. And it's often accompanied by vivid, lingering imagery. Uh, it's the stuff of dreams. Uh, so the dreamer's sexual fantasies, belief system, pop culture are all likely to color the visions and sensations that are ripped uh, from the dream world. And it's where uh, where all the probing and the demonic intercourse comes into play as well. <laughs> you know, I, I again, I don't have a lot of di- direct experience of any of these scenarios, but I do I do have a strong memory from my childhood of dreaming about a toy that I really wanted uh-huh. waking up. And seeing the toy in bed with me initially, Whoa. you know, to and grant, you know, this is a memory of a childhood dream. So it's, you know, I, it's manipulated uh, like crazy every time I take it out. Right. Like all memories. But uh, but but I do have that strong memory of waking and seeing it. So is I had a life size Iron Maiden you wanted. It was like a, it was kind of like an old timey robot, you know, the kind oh, okay. of like metal walkie robots. Uh, wind up robots. Those are good. Yeah. I never had one except for this one that I dreamed about and saw in the, in the waking world with me and then uh-huh. it just kind of faded away. Okay. Well, so how common is sleep paralysis? That's a good question to ask. Yeah. Especially if you're trying to, you know, prop up the idea that it's informing global myths and, uh, and, and predominant aspects of the human experience. Yeah. So lifetime prevalence, uh, th- there's actually a paper from 2011 fr- published in the journal Sleep Medicine Reviews by Brian A. Sharpless and uh, uh, Jacques P. Barber called Lifetime Prevalence Rates of Sleep Paralysis, a Systematic Review. And it looked at a whole bunch of other studies and sort of combined their samples to try to get a, a rough picture of how common it is for these things to happen. Looks like it's really common. People experience this all the time. So uh, they say aggregating across studies, so with a total sample size of more than 36,000, it was 36,533, they found that 7.6% of the general population, 28.3% of students, and 31.9% of psychiatric patients experienced at least one episode of sleep paralysis in their lifetime. And uh, then of psychiatric patients who had some form of panic disorder, 34.6% reported lifetime sleep paralysis. So uh, this uh, this seems to indicate that this just it happens all the time. You know, tons of people have had this experience at one time or another. And really, once is all it takes. If right. It, if yeah, it is yeah. a sufficiently uh, traumatic experience, a sufficiently unexplainable uh, experience. And then. You also have to think of it, too, like how often does it have to occur within a group? Like you just have if we're to imagine like a medieval village, right? Yeah. If it just happens to, what do we say, 28 percent of the people that are living there? Uh, well, that's of students. So if you say 7.6 percent of the general population. So if you have a village of 100 people, mm-hmm. eight people in the village will experience sleep paralysis at some time in their life. Yeah. And that so that's that's enough. Like if it's eight separate families, then you have like eight separate, um, you know, that just multiplies the number of individuals that are going to be then invested in believing this experience. Right. Yeah. 
so, so I think in the end, the incubus-succubus phenomenon, it, it's sort of inevitable that we arrived at having some kind of belief in a demon of this kind because it, you combine a large number of different natural elements that may have not been fully understood at the time, like the experience of nocturnal emission in mm-hmm. men and boys, unexplained pregnancies at a time when sexual activity was highly stig- stigmatized and probably incest and family abuse were underreported. Mm-hmm. Um, babies born with congenital disorders. Yep. Uh, of course, Walter Stevens idea about a popular motivation to validate the existence of the supernatural and people's experiences of sleep paralysis, which we've now discovered are uh, neurologically salient and very common, mm-hmm. it just seems like a perfect recipe for creating this belief in these nighttime sex demons that visit people in bed. Uh, I would almost be surprised if humans had not come up with legends like this. Yeah, I mean, just if nothing else, sexual reproduction is like a large part of what humans do. So, of course, we're going to have mythological creatures that get involved in it. So there you have it. Uh, an introduction for some of you to the world of Incubi and Succubi. For others, perhaps we've added a little more depth to your understanding of of this myth as it manifests itself uh, around the world. And, uh, hey, maybe it'll inspire some of you to, uh, you know, create uh, some more uh, inventive incubi, succubi, uh, bits of uh, horror media out there. Certainly. Also, we should remind again, recommended reading from this episode, uh, the, the Demon Lover's Book by Walter Stevens. Yep. It's, uh, it's readily available. Uh, I mean, uh, I can't remember. I think I got my, I got my copy like used on Amazon, one of those where you can pick up a, you know, a great volume of it for like five bucks or so. And it has illustrations. Also, uh, you can read it online for free if you are able to deal with some hilarious spellings in early modern English, but check out King James's demonology. It's a hoot. Excellent. We'll include links to both of those on the landing page for this episode at stufftoblowyourmind.com as well as some related articles and videos and podcast episodes on the site that have dealt with um, with the sleep paralysis, with demons, with sexuality, and all the various uh, uh, cultural complications involved. Oh, yes. And if you want to get in touch with us directly to let us know feedback on this episode or any other or to suggest episode topics for the future, as always, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Thank <laughs> you.